I'm going to re- resist saying all right <laughs> because I heard Anthony Cobbler's message from Seaside on Friday, and he was mocking me and Caleb. Both of us, the first thing we do when we pick up the mic is, all right. I never, I never noticed I did that. I'm going to put an end to those foolish ways. No more of that. Now turn to Job 32 with me. Job is before the book of Psalm. Turn to Joel 32, verse 8. Job, Job. 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 All right, let's look at verse 8 of chapter 32. I'm going to read it in the ESV. But it is the spirit in man, the breath of the Almighty, that makes him understand. It is the spirit in man, the breath of the Almighty, that makes him understand. Uh, Today I'm going to preach about the breath of the Almighty. But before I proceed, I just want to say a few things that are important for the house. Uh, you know, here at New Philly, God's always doing a new thing. Amen? Amen. You know, uh, I need my glasses. Uh, yeah, blurry here. Can you grab my glasses? You know, thank you. Uh, as God is always doing a new thing here at this ministry, you know, we always want to roll with the punches and follow the leading of the Spirit for what He's doing next. Because God's also a God that doesn't like to repeat Himself. He doesn't like to go, to, go on autopilot. He doesn't like to just do things the same way it's always done because it's always been done that way. There is no status quo for God. You know, God's always changing and moving and doing something fresh, something new. I mean, how boring would Apple computers be if all they did was relaunch old products from five years ago and say, hey, remember this? Don't you want to buy it out of nostalgia? No, of course not, right? And as we are learning to roll with the Holy Spirit and to be adaptable to what God is highlighting, ministers need to recognize that stagnancy is the first step toward the death of a ministry. The Holy Spirit's all about breathing new life upon his people and upon the earth. So for most of my first four years serving as your lead pastor, I had a very small staff team, about five or six people. But in my fifth year, in 2012, The Lord said this is the year of increase. And so he tripled our staff team to 15. And so in this past year, uh, not only did we have an increase in our staff team, we also uh, grew numerically a bit from average attendance of 226 to 302 at three campuses. Uh, I went over that last week. And I believe that soon we will see over 500 people coming out to our services. Amen? And hopefully we'll... I'll help to keep the 500 people by preaching less offensive messages, all right, and being a little bit more, um, uh, uh, I don't know, okay, I'm just going to be myself, what can I do? Uh, Anyway, hopefully 500 will come and 500 will stay, all right, pray for me, okay. Anyway, as we prepare for even more growth with our future church plants, some of you guys know in Australia, it's been coming up in Sydney and Melbourne. We'll be going forward with our church plants in the new year. And the opening of our K-1 Academy in 2014, I found it wise to create new staff positions of leadership called executive director positions and appoint certain people to oversee that area of ministry for all of our church campuses. Instead of me trying to do it for everything and trying to, you know, put out fires and help, you know, manage all these things. I need to really empower our staff to do this. And so I created a bunch of executive director positions. So uh, when I call out your name, I want you to stand up for a moment, okay? Now, the first three you guys are pretty much already aware of, but I'm just officially making it 
an executive director position. So for as many church plants as we do, this person will be in charge of that area of ministry for three to 30 campuses, however many we end up doing, right? So the executive director of worship will be Pastor John Newfield. So Pastor John, I know you're listening from Busan. Just stand up. Uh, the model of the worship executive director will be to develop a culture of extravagant worship. And he will be overseeing all the worship leaders at each campus and the worship teams and the programming director and the tech team. All right. Uh, you guys are already aware of our college ministry director, the very lovely Pastor Aaron. Pastor Aaron, could you just stand, stand up for a moment? She will be the executive director of our college ministry, which we call Emmaus. So the motto of Emmaus is pretty much to give college students an Emmaus Road experience where the scriptures are open up to them. They get a revelation of Jesus and their hearts just begin to burn with the fire of God. Uh, so she'll be overseeing all Emmaus staff, all the campus director at every campus we end up church uh, campus planning at, uh, overseeing the Emmaus retreat, making decisions for planning on a new campus, etc. Uh this is not an executive director position because this person is not on full-time staff with us. So I'm going to call him an associate director. Uh, but the associate director of Healing Deliverance, uh, you guys know who they already are. Uh, pastors John, Michael, and Sky. Could you guys just stand up for a moment? All right. So you guys, you guys are already aware of what they're doing. Uh, their motto is pretty much freedom is for everyone. For every child of God. We believe that God, Christ went to the cross uh, not to only provide us freedom for eternity, but freedom for us now and here. Everlasting begin, life begins here, the moment you receive Christ. And so it's for freedom that Christ has set us free. And so he's here to make sure that all the leaders of the house are healthy, to equip them to do healing and deliverance, because we believe it's a ministry for the entire house, and to oversee severe healing and deliverance cases. That's pretty much the gist of what they do. Now, for the new, the, some of these new positions, I want to ask you to stand up, and I want you to just remain standing, and everyone just please hold your applause to the end, all right? So I'll just describe what some of these new positions will be taking on, because this is a major shift, all right? It's going to require also the current leaders to uh, submit to the proper executive directors, all right? So listen. The first position is the executive director of community life. Uh, per this person's motto is pretty much turn strangers into sons you like that i like it some of the major responsibilities are to oversee community pastors so these are new positions uh and so i'll describe that next okay so to oversee community pastors at each campus oversee the exploring christianity class at each campus which we will begin and oversee member testimonies, which we want to try to get once per month at our Sunday services. We want to get the testimonies of our church community to come up and to share because there's power in testimony. So that's the executive director of community life. And then the community pastor at each campus, their model is the same, turn strangers into sons. But they'll be more focused on the local level, pray for newcomers, oversee baptisms, welcoming ministry, uh, membership class, connection coaches, community care pastors, membership accountability, which includes tithes and offering, tithes, offerings and attendance, ministry teams, uh, sons from afar. Uh, so this person is overseeing a lot. Also, they are uh, in charge of organizing and taking sign-ups for local church events like fellowship, retreats, banquets, picnics, etc. And also to organize and to teach an exploring Christianity class four times a year and to encourage newcomers and members to join a small group community group or familia okay and so the executive director of community life is pastor myunghwa Choi. stand up uh, hold your applause and just remain standing and the community pastor for hillside is also pastor myunghwa at e Taiwan is marcus and at uh, seaside is uh, pastor lydia i need to tell her that sure I hope, yeah, I'm sure she'll be fine with it. All right, next. We have the executive director uh, 
the devil is a liar. What happened? Oh, man. I got two things got printed on the same page. I'm sorry. Let me get my laptop. Get my laptop up here. All right. The next position is executive director of creativity. It's a new position. So as we go into the year of inspiration, we're also creating a new snap position. All right, and this person's model is pretty much to nurture a culture of creativity and inspiration. Major responsibilities will be to oversee the graphic design projects of the church, also to organize training events where creativity can be inspired amongst our staff and leaders. And then also they will be meeting with other, this person will be meeting with other executive directors to help to renew their ministries so that they don't get stagnant. All right, so the executive director of creativity uh, is... Pastor Marcus, so he will take a stand, Marcus, as you listen. Next position, Executive Director of Discipleship. Uh, this person, uh, his motto is to provide biblical, balanced, and fresh teaching materials. Uh, some of the responsibilities is to systematically pull new materials from all the preaching pastors for our discipleship curriculum, small group, community group, familia, uh, furnace, seminars, new recruits, marriage counseling, married couples ministry, missions training, etc., Okay, and then to provide feedback and support for the healing deliverance ministry of the house. All right, so this person, executive director of discipleship, is also Pastor Marcus. Okay, stand up. Remain standing. I told you to stand up. Oh, like, ah, so many people not here. Okay, executive director of leadership. This person's motto is to turn mature sons into mighty warriors. So uh, this person will be overseeing all leadership pastors at each campus and then organizing our leadership retreat, uh, new recruits training, and the leadership banquet, right? And this person is Pastor Anita. Next position, Executive Director of Missions. You guys are already aware pretty much who it is. Uh, this person's motto is to send out mighty warriors into the harvest field. Uh, and so this person is overseeing short-term mission trips, mobilizing the optimum number of people. We don't want to just send a bunch of people. We want to send the optimum number of people. And uh, this person will be visiting and strengthening MPWA ministry partners and churches, as well as overseeing any interns that we will be receiving for MPWM in the future. Uh, this person is Lisa. And then lastly, the executive director of multimedia uh, the only model I have come to for this right now is exploit multimedia for kingdom purposes. <laughs> I don't know if that's good, but give me some feedback later. Anyway, the responsibilities of this person is to oversee all multimedia, uh, capturing and archiving of the church's events, oversee New Philly social media website and multimedia projects, and to oversee all associate photographers and videographers of the church. And we do have an army of photographers and videographers. And so this person will be Pastor Joel. Okay. All right. Sorry, Myung-Hwa. I thought everyone would be here, but it was just you and Joel. Uh, listen, though. From now on, uh, I want to announce to the whole church that I will not be having regular meetings with all the staff. Staff team is a little bit too big right now for that. And so that was the old dispensation when I had only five or six people. But in the new dispensation, what I'm going to do is meet monthly with the executive directors. And then they themselves will lead meetings with their own team members and leaders that they are overseeing. All right, you guys got that? So I'm going to stop micromanaging. This is my way of, of avoiding that controlling witchcraft spirit, right? I'm going to stop micromanaging. I'm going to start empowering the leaders to take it to another level. It's the year of inspiration, right? And so this requires a lot of faith on my part. So you got to pray for me. Okay. Um, and so that's what we're going to do. And, you know, because our leaders have been walking in sonship and maturity, you know, our house, we enjoy a really high level of trust. You know, trust is such a valuable asset to not just churches, but to companies. And trust is what makes way for a great deal of autonomy, you know. And so, you know, we, we really enjoy that level of trust here in this house. And so, here, stay with me. All right. So, I do want to say that uh, most of these executive director positions are new. And so, each director will need some time 
to adjust and learn about their new role. So empowering them is not going to be an event. It will be a process. And so I will be giving a lot of direct input in the beginning, but don't be deceived. All right, that's not me trying to, you know, take control. All right, that's just me getting through the initial stages. It doesn't mean I don't trust you. All right, it just means that I want you first to make sure you get my heart, you get the vision. All right, uh, and then you can take it and do whatever you want with it. Right? Not whatever you want, but you know what I mean. <laughs> you know, the very spirit of sonship requires that you first grasp what the father of the house envisions and wants, and then you build and execute accordingly. So I'm very open for your input and creativity, uh, but I want to make sure that you guys understand what the vision of your positions are all about. All right? And so I'm very excited. Uh, I believe that this is going to really take our church from good to great. So uh, once again, let's just welcome all our new executive directors to their (laughs) new positions. Papers got messed up. All right. Okay. All right. So let's go on. Uh, That took 15 minutes. All right. Uh, Last year, I talked about, I mean, not last year. (laughs) Last week, I preached the first sermon of 2013, and I talked about the theme for the church, the theme of the new year. And I talked about how it is the year 2013 is the year of inspiration. Everybody say inspiration. inspiration. And I, uh, we looked at 2 Timothy 3.16, and it says how all scripture is God-breathed. And in the Greek, that's theopeneustos, pneustos, all right? And it comes from two Greek words, theo meaning God, and pneuma meaning uh, breath. And so literally, the ESV translates it, God breathed. But I told you that New King James Version translates it well as well by interpreting it a little bit. And it says that all scripture is divinely inspired. It's inspired by God. All right? And so uh, wherever God breathes upon something or someone, there's going to be inspiration in that place. And so today I want to talk about the breath of the Almighty. Because the breath of the Almighty is a theme that if you look in Scripture, it's hidden all there. It's all there. And it's a powerful theme. So I'm going to unpack it for you today. I want you to turn to your neighbor and say, the breath of the Almighty is powerful. You know, it says in Psalm 33, verse 6, By the word of the Lord were the heavens made... Their starry host by the breath of his mouth. I want you to do me a favor right now. Cusp your hand over your mouth and smell your breath right now. Take a, take a big whiff of your breath. All right. How's that smell? Some of y'all are just looking at me. You don't, you don't, you don't, you don't want to smell your breath? All right. All right anyway. Now. We just smelled the breath of our mouth. And it may have been powerful too, but in a different way. But the Bible says when God breathed out the breath of his mouth, all the stars of the heavens were put in their place. That's powerful. I don't see nothing like that happening when you breathe out out of your mouth. But God does, and all the stars go right in. Isn't that crazy? All right, I just thought that was pretty crazy. <laughs> so today I'm going to talk about the breath of the Almighty. The Bible says that when... Um, I already said that, sorry. <laughs> oh man, my papers are messing me up. All right, pray for me right now. Okay, okay, that's enough. <laughs> All right, let me go on, sorry. In the Bible, the breath of the Almighty is used in three main metaphoric ways. I'm going to talk about that. First, the breath of God gives us life. Turn to Job 33, verse 4. A chapter later, look at that. It says, the Spirit of God, Job 33, verse 4. The Spirit of God has made me, and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. 
It is the breath of the Almighty that initially gave the entire world life. You know, one thing that's very powerful symbolism is that breath represents life. Not oxygen, but breath represents life. Did you know that every living creature breathes? Do you know that? They don't all breathe like us. But every living creature has to breathe in order for it to have life. You know, we inhale and exhale. But birds, they can take a breath in and a breath out at the same time. That's why birds, they can sing for a long, long period of time. And you don't hear a bird going, <gasps> right? They just, I can't even imitate a bird singing. I'm sorry. Some animals don't even breathe through their nostrils, through their mouth. They actually breathe through their skin. Frogs, for example, can breathe mostly through its skin. And so for some species of frogs, you can surgically remove their lungs and they'll still be perfectly fine. As long as they, their skin is wet, they can breathe normally and be very healthy. Uh, slugs, snails, worms, they don't have a nose. They also breathe through their skin. Uh, many insects uh, also breathe through a series of holes, like little modified gills or something like that along their sides. And you guys also know fish may look like they don't breathe because when we go underwater, we can't breathe. But fish don't have that problem. All right, fish, whenever they, right, that's why fish are always like, Fish always open their mouth because they're, they're breathing. When water, oxygen-enriched water goes through their mouth and along their gills and comes out through their gills, that's how they get oxygen. That's how they are breathing continually. Biologically, we breathe because it gives us energy and life. You cannot play sports if you're holding your breath for most of the time, you will lose your energy very quick. In fact, for people who are beginner swimmers, the big issue is they don't know how to breathe while swimming well. And uh, same for me. I still, I'm still learning how to swim well. Every time uh, I race Judy Choi, she used to be a, a water polo athlete back in high school. And so I'm determined to beat her one day. In a, in, a swimming, in a swimming race. But uh, so far, every time I've raced her, um, Aaron has captured it on video. I have been very far behind. <laughs> but uh, a big reason why some people don't really swim well is because they don't know how to breathe well. So you, you know, you're putting all this energy in, but if you're not breathing well, your energy drops very quickly, and you're not able to beat Judy Choi. Breathing gives us energy and life, and without it, we would be dead. What a living creature needs is that it needs to breathe. This is why it's important that when a person stops breathing and they have no pulse, you got to start cardiopulmonary resuscitation, otherwise known as CPR. All right, I learned CPR. I used to be a lifeguard in high school. Let me tell you something. I used to be a lifeguard. Okay. So I, I know how to do CPR. But if, if a person stops breathing, they get a heart attack, they drown, you know, so whatever, right? You know, I know in Baywatch, it looks like, you know, and then the person <coughs> coughs up all this water and then, you know, they're alive and then they hug, right? But in real life, real life, it doesn't always work like that. In real life, you know, a person stops breathing, they, uh, they don't have a pulse. You start CPR until the paramedics arrive. And so you could be doing CPR for like a good 12, 15 minutes. So it's not, it ain't Baywatch. Ain't nobody coughing up blood. Even if they drown and they come out, they don't always cough up blood. They may not resuscitate. But you're keeping them alive through CPR. You're breathing for them is what you're doing when you do CPR. You're, you're putting in as much oxygen that you can get put into their lungs. And then you're pumping their chest and it imitates your heart beating. Because they, they don't have a pulse. So their heart's not beating, right? And so if, a, if you don't do that for somebody, they can die. Like a lot of heart attack victims, if, if the heart attack's not that severe, 
if all you can do is keep up CPR for like, I don't know, eight, ten minutes until the paramedics arrive, that will save their life. But if nobody's able to perform CPR, that person during that eight, ten minutes till the paramedics arrive, they will begin to get brain damage. And worse, they can permanently just die. To be clinically dead, I learned in lifeguarding, is to stop breathing and to not have a pulse. But that's, that doesn't, clinical death doesn't mean you're dead. Biological death is what, what defines true death. Right? And so biological death says when your brain is dead, you're dead, you're dead. So you, don't, you can't breathe on your own, you don't have a heartbeat, and your brain is dead, then you're permanently biologically dead. You know, think of it this way. Despite all of our technological advancements in artificial intelligence and biotechnology, one thing that man cannot do is to put the breath of life into something that is permanently dead. Scientists cannot create like a cute little animal and then breathe life into it. Like an animal that's, you know, let's say you make it with cells and whatever. Like, you know, you can't, you can't breathe life into something that's dead, you know. Uh, Jeremiah fifty-one seventeen says, Every man is stupid and without knowledge. Every goldsmith is put to shame by his idols, for his images are false. There is no breath in them. In other words, God is saying every idol that man bows down to has no life in it. That's why it's so appalling to God when mankind bows down to idols. God, if you're going to bow down to something, bow down to a monkey or something, something that's at least living and breathing. But when you bow down to an idol, you're bowing down to a demonically inspired image that is just dead. It can't speak back to you. It can't give you better crops. It can't help your uh, wife get pregnant. Uh, idols are just dead images that Satan uses to incur the judgment of God upon an individual city and a nation. So number one. The breath of the Almighty provides life. It gives us life. Number two, the breath of the Almighty symbolizes divine judgment and justice in the Bible. So I'll read to you a couple of passages. Job 4, 9. It says, by the breath of God, they perish. And by the blast of his anger, they are consumed. And so there's an element of justice and judgment, if you look there closely. Isaiah 11:4. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor, and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Okay? So the breath of God is not all hunky-dory, all right? The breath of God symbolizes justice and judgment. God goes, and he gives life. God also goes, and the Red Sea just collapses upon the Egyptian army, bringing judgment and justice. The Lord snorts out of his nostrils, and the wicked, they don't wake up. So you thought your breath was powerful, right? God's breath brings justice and judgment. The breath of the Almighty. You know, and I see this kind of in my marriage, you know. Uh, whenever I say something insensitive, you know, I'll hear my wife breathe different. <laughs> or she'll let out a sigh. <sighs> All right? I know that that sigh, that breath is a sign of her anger. I don't want to keep on pushing that, all right? The husband, pay attention to the way your wife breathes. <laughs> now, uh, there are three Hebrew words... In the Old Testament, that are often translated breath in our English translations. They are Hevel, which means uh, a mere breath. Like it's talking about the shortness of life. Second is Neshama. And third is Ruach. Everyone say Neshama, neshama. and ruach. ruach. The latter two words are used for the breath of God, the breath of the Almighty. And according to one Hebrew dictionary, one of the meanings for neshama is divine inspiration. Isn't that cool? Everyone say divine inspiration. inspiration. So the third way in which the Bible speaks about the breath of God 
is in divine inspiration. So if you look at the, our original passage, Job 32, verse 8. Uh, are you still there? Look at Job 32, verse 8. I'm going to break it down for you. It says, it is the spirit in man. Now, that word spirit is the Hebrew word ruach. It's interesting. So look at, stay with me. It is the ruach in man. In man. It is the spirit in man, the breath. It's the nish, nishmat shaddai. Nishmat shaddai. Nishmat is a deriv, deriv, derivative of neshama, which means the breath of God, the breath, all right? And so it says, it is the spirit in man, the breath of the Almighty, but you can also translate that, the divine inspiration of the Almighty that makes him understand. You guys grasping what I'm getting at? It is the breath of the Almighty, the Nishmat Shaddai. Everyone say Nishmat Shaddai. The breath of the Almighty, the divine inspiration of the Almighty. Is what causes man to understand. To understand the riddles of the universe. To understand the secrets of the kingdom. To understand the wisdom of God. To understand divine revelation. It is the nishmat shaddai. The breath of the almighty. That causes us and gives us understanding. And so this is the sense of the uh, word usage in 2 Timothy 3.16. Where it says all scripture is God breathed. All scripture is divinely inspired all right now uh the hebrew word for breath uh breath of god ruach and neshama and the greek word for breath panuma everyone say panuma all three of these words can be translated breath wind or spirit breath wind or spirit so wherever you see the spirit of the Lord or the spirit of the almighty, the spirit of God in the Bible, wherever you see that, you're actually looking at the Hebrew words, ruach, neshama, or the Greek word, panuma. There is no proper uh, name. Like in English, it looks like a proper name because we capitalize the S. But in the Hebrew and Greek, it doesn't do that actually. So you need context to understand if it's talking about the breath of God figuratively or it's actually talking about the Spirit of God, or if it's talking about a little bit of both. I'm going somewhere. All right, stay with me right here. So I told you that the breath of the Almighty is powerful. That's because the breath of God is oftentimes referring to the very Spirit of God in the Bible. The Spirit of God is powerful. This is why the breath of God is powerful. And wherever the spirit of the Lord is, the spirit, the breath of God brings life, brings justice and judgment, and brings divine inspiration. Wherever the spirit of God is welcomed, you're going to see life, justice, and inspiration. Now, I want to talk about these three themes. The breath of the Almighty brings life 2000 years ago the breath of the almighty breathed upon a young virgin girl named mary and she became pregnant okay right now aaron and i are trying to have a child okay i can breathe on her all i want (laughs) she ain't getting pregnant (laughs) i mean i mean i remember growing up in philly man i saw so many teenage pregnancies i was like man it's gonna be easy getting pregnant Man, it, it, it is not like that. I mean, it is God who really gives life. It's God who, who opens the womb, closes it. It's God who fills that womb. Um, anyway, this, the breath of God breathes upon Mary and she gets pregnant. She becomes with child and names him Jesus. The child grows up and claims to be the good shepherd who's going to lay down his life for his sheep. And then he goes on to say in John 10, 10, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. All right? So wherever the breath of the Almighty is, it brings life. It gives life. So Jesus himself, his very birth was caused by the breath of God. And his very ministry 
represented the birth of God. And wherever his ministry was, there was life. And there was life abundant. The breath of the Almighty also brings justice and judgment. Let me talk about this theme. After Jesus grew up, the breath of the Almighty began to lead him toward the city of Jerusalem. And Jesus knew exactly why he was headed to that city. It was not to join in on some party. It was not to be crowned as the new king. It was to be crowned instead with a crown of thorns. Jesus knew that he was headed into that city to be crucified. But the spirit of God was leading him there. Leading him there. And at the end of Jesus' public ministry, the breath of the Almighty blew across Jesus' physical body and dispensed justice, judgment, and punishment of sin. Now, a lot of times we think, oh, it was the you know, knucklehead of Romans. You know, they, they tortured Jesus. No, 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 no. You have to understand, it was the very breath of God that was bringing justice and judgment. It was the very wrath of God that caused Jesus to suffer the way he did. It wasn't that Jesus, oh no, he fell into the hands of the Romans. Oh no, what are the Romans going to do? Oh, the Romans are so cruel. Oh, so they're going to torture him. No, 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 no. God made sure that the culture of the Romans was all set up ahead of time. I mean, I mean, the Romans were pretty ruthless people. I mean, they were like very educated, civilized. They weren't like, like barbarians, by the way. They were highly educated. And yet they were so brutal. They would throw Christians into lion's dens later on. They came up with a a form of torture that's public, that's disgraceful. And it was not only to be punitive, it was to be preventative. The crucifixion never killed anybody. A lot of times crucifixions didn't kill nobody. Even Jesus, he didn't get killed by the crucifixion. Jesus, I mean, really, what, what he, he bled to death. He bled to death, and he, he, couldn't, he, he couldn't have the energy to hold himself up, so he couldn't breathe. You know, and the other two robbers that are crucified with him, they had to break their legs because they weren't dead. And so, you know, it was up to the Romans how long they wanted to keep them up there. It's the preventative measure of the crucifixion. But what am I getting to that? Come back. Come back. It's the breath of the Almighty that demanded full justice and payment for sin. And it, w- it went all the way. It demanded death. The breath of the Almighty demanded death for sin. So the Bible says in Luke twenty three forty six that Jesus hanging on that cross, he breathed his last breath so that you can have everlasting life. The breath of the Almighty brings justice and judgment. And third, the breath of the Almighty brings inspiration, divine inspiration. And I believe we could see this, that after the um, resurrection of Jesus, there's actually a very interesting uh, text in John 20, verse 22, that says that Jesus appeared to his disciples after the resurrection, and then he breathed on them. I don't know how he did it. Come here closer. Or if he was like, I don't know how he did it. But the Bible says he breathed on them. Isn't that weird? He breathed on them, and then he said, in case we didn't get what that meant, what, what, what that was all about, he said, receive the Holy Spirit. So I believe that this is the point from which every born-again Christian received the indwelling ministry of the Holy Spirit. So that today, when you hear the gospel, and you respond to Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you get the indwelling of the Holy Spirit inside of you guaranteeing everlasting life the breath of the almighty no longer breathes upon you is is now in you guaranteeing everlasting life now the the breath of the almighty also brings inspiration and on the day of pentecost after this breathing incident with jesus jesus ascended into heaven but before he ascended into heaven he told the disciples do not leave jerusalem because in a few days It's about 50 days after his uh, death and resurrection. 
In a few days, you're going to receive power from on high when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. For John baptized with water, but in a few days, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And this is the promise of the Father, Jesus said. And so what happened? The 120 uh, disciples that were gathered in the upper room, and as they were praying on the day of Pentecost, the Bible says, a great wind blew across that room or across that house. Now, I don't know if they had concrete walls or if they had wooden walls. I don't know. But they heard a breath, a mighty breath, and it filled the whole room. And then divided tongues of fire fell on them. And they started to speak in tongues. And they came out looking drunk. People accused them and ridiculed them, mocked them of being drunk. And then Peter stood up and explained what they were seeing as a fulfillment of Joel chapter 2, where the Spirit of God would be poured out on all flesh. And the sons and daughters would prophesy. Peter preaches his first sermon. Peter didn't go to seminary. I don't remember Jesus giving Peter a preaching one-on-one class. Peter received the Holy Spirit, not only indwelling him, but on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit, the breath of God, came upon him with power. And he was divinely inspired to preach a message, according to seminary standards, was very poor. All right, It wasn't like a three-point sermon, expository style. No, 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 no. He was quoting Old Testament scriptures here, left and right. And people are like, hey, you're taking that out of context. But it didn't matter. He was divinely inspired and anointed. And 3,000 people responded to the gospel call that day. And they got saved. And instantly you had a mega church on your hands. And we think these, you know, early churches were little home small groups. No, 3,000 people got saved. Now, some of them had to go home. I understand that. But a lot of them lived in in that city. They lived in Jerusalem. And so the first church was a bunch of Jewish Christians going back to the Old Testament and figuring out where Jesus is in the Bible. When you are filled with the breath of the Almighty, you become just like Bezalel, like we we read about last week in Exodus. You get filled with skill, knowledge, intelligence, craftsmanship in all kinds of areas. And when you are filled with the breath of the Almighty. Inspiration flows like a river. It's not like a faucet. It's not like a trick, trickle. It flows like a river. And so wherever the breath of the Almighty is, the Bible says the breath of the Almighty brings life, it brings justice, and it brings inspiration. Now let me ask you a question. Are you filled with the breath of the Almighty? Because if you are filled with the Spirit of God, That means wherever you go, you're going to bring life. Wherever you go, you're going to release justice. Wherever you go, you're going to be filled with divine inspiration. People are going to be like, how would you come up with that idea? Where would you get this inspiration for this business? I've never seen anything like it. And you will know that it's all because of the breath of the Almighty. The Spirit of God who is filling you. And giving you that ability. For everyone who trusts in Jesus, they receive the breath of God permanently inside of them, guaranteeing everlasting life. But the Bible says, for everyone who rejects the testimony of God's only Son, the Bible prophesies the day when Jesus is going to return with great glory and power, and he's going to defeat his enemies with the breath of his mouth. You know, you, you think when Jesus returns, there's going to be like nations gathered to destroy the Jews. Nations gathered to persecute uh, the church. You think, you think as Jesus returns, Jesus is going to get in a big old like, fight, like mar- you know, mixed martial arts. Like, you know, starts, starts fighting armies and getting out missiles and angels coming out with like big old, big old you know, like rocket propelled grenades. And, you know, like, come on, I'm, in, I'm an angel. Watch out. Here's my missile. No, it ain't going to be like that. Jesus Jesus going just like he did for the disciples, right? When he he breathed upon them, just like he did on the day of Pentecost, he did a little harder. On the day when Jesus returns in glory, is this going to be? His enemies are just going to be. It's going to perish. It's going to be no contest, and it's going to be one dreadful and fearful day for every person that does not know Jesus Christ. And even for people who know Jesus, it's going to be a dreadful day. Because for those who have not lived a faithful life, 
who have just been doing cultural Christianity all their lives and expect to feel joy at the return of Jesus, when they're living a double, a life of duplicity, living in sin for most of the week, and they're pretending to be a Christian on Sunday, you think when Jesus returns, it's going to be a joyful day? No, it's going to be a dreadful day for them too. But they'll still be saved. The Bible says it'll be just through the skin of their teeth. This is going to be just barely escaping the flames. There are going to be some people, man. They're going to be, they're going to be saved, but they're not going to be rejoicing when Jesus returns. Because they're going to realize, man, I have just wasted my life. I have not glorified my God with the life that I have lived. So as we enter the year of inspiration, New Philadelphia, this year more than ever, we need to be filled by the breath of the Almighty. Amen? Amen. I want us to, um, I want to provide an opportunity right now to pray for those who feel dry in their Christian life. You see, in the Bible, in Ezekiel 37, there's a vision that the prophet Ezekiel receives. And it's a vision of a valley of dry bones. And then the, the, the voice of the Lord asks Ezekiel a question. He says, can these dry bones live? What a ridiculous question. That's like, that's like us taking the Cambodia team to the Khmer Rouge killing fields where all the skeletons and all these corpses are. And then saying, can these skeletons live? That's the same thing God was doing for Ezekiel. But Ezekiel answered, well, Lord, you know. And God says, surely these dry bones shall live. I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live. I will lay sinews upon you and cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you and you shall live and you shall know that I am the Lord. And I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them. Flesh had come upon them, and skin covered them, but there was no breath in them. You know, that's the picture of a lot of church, churches. This is a picture of a lot of Christians. They have the form of Christianity. They have all the right doctrine, all the right answers. You shake their hand, you talk to them, they smile at you like a good Christian would. They have the form of it, but they might still be inside feeling lifeless. Jesus said, I came that they may have life and life abundant. You're not just supposed to have life. You're supposed to have it abundantly. Where the breath of God breathes upon people. He doesn't just come to say, your sins are forgiven and you're going to heaven. Now, that's the important part. But the Spirit of God doesn't end there. The Spirit of God brings abundant life. That's a good picture of the church. Ezekiel 37. They had skin. They had flesh. The bones came together, but there was no breath. So God said to me, Ezekiel talking, prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. You know, the vision of our church is to raise up an army. Of mighty warriors. And I know that our church is in a psalmic season. But that does not negate. That that's what God has called us to do. Is to continue to take the broken. The orphan. Establish them in the spirit of sonship. And train them. And mature them into mighty warriors. Into Gideons and Zephthas. There might be people in here. And you just feel like your Christian life. Is dry as a bone. And I'm telling you today, the answer is you need to get the breath of the Almighty on your life. You need to get filled with the Holy Spirit. This is not something just for the Pentecostals. This is not just something for people who go to a charismatic church. This is for every Christian. Every Christian. Jesus didn't say, over those of you who have a charismatic tendency, you stay in Jerusalem and in a few days you will get the Holy Spirit. No. They already had the Holy Spirit, remember, from John 20. They had the indwelling already. But they had yet to receive the empowering, that dramatic, empowering, divine inspiration, life-giving experience. They didn't have that yet. That's why they were huddled together in fear in the upper room. But when they got that Pentecost experience, everything changed. 
And they began to go throughout all the regions of Judea, Samaria, preaching the gospel boldly with signs and wonders accompanying them. I want to close your eyes. There's people in here right now. I'm going to ask our pastors to come forward. For New Philly, in the year of inspiration, it's going to be very important that you continually be filled with the Spirit of God. It is the breath of the Almighty that gives us divine inspiration. Whether you're starting a business, whether you're dreaming big dreams for your life, for your ministry, be sure you do it all, moment by moment, filled with the breath of the Almighty. Filled with the Ruach, Ruach Shaddai. Filled with the Neshama Shaddai. Filled with the Panuma of God, the Spirit of God. But for all those in here today, you're not even there yet. You're not even walking with the Lord. Your Christian life has just been dry as a bone. I want to pray for you. I want to pray for you. So in a moment, the praise team is going to just sing real softly. And as they do that, I'm going to invite people up to the front. All right? If you feel like that valley of dry bones, come and let our leaders pray for you. So that the breath of the Almighty may come upon you as it did to the disciples on the day of Pentecost. You're not meant to live, just just live life. You're meant to live the abundant life. You're meant to be filled by the breath of the Almighty. Alright, just, just, just sit down, just sit down. All right. So if there are people in here that are like that, we want to pray for you. If they're not, we're just, we're just close up the service. But if that's you, I want everyone to close your eyes for now. If that's you, I want you to stand up right now. Just stand up. You feel dry. You feel dry as a bone. I want to pray for a fresh filling or initial filling of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the breath of the Almighty. This is not just a charismatic thing. It's not a Pentecostal thing. This is a God thing. This is a biblical thing. From the beginning of the Bible to the end, the theme is the Ruach Almighty, the Ruach Shaddai, the breath of God, the Neshama Shaddai, the Spirit of the Almighty. You need to get the Spirit of the Almighty upon you because in the Old Testament, they couldn't even get it. Only a select few people got it. But on this side of the cross, after Jesus gave his last breath on that cross, he made available the breath of God for every single person who calls upon his name. So just pray for you if you're standing up. Alright, if you're standing, I want to invite you. Come here, come up here to the front, to the front right here. I think we have more than enough space. Come up here to the front right.